Today's episode is brought to you by Romer Skincare. Based out of Chicago, Romer launched a work-from-home clean skincare line that covers all your skin needs. They proved that you don't need a million serums and eye creams to get better skin. Why we love them? Clean ingredients and effective results with just a simple three-step routine that you and even your partner can share. Right now, Romer Skincare is offering our listeners 15% off and a gift with your first purchase by using the code LISTENER15. That's code LISTENER15 on their website, romerskincare.com. No stress, no clutter, just happy skin. Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Please make sure you have clicked subscribe for this podcast because we are going to have a two-part Halloween special on Helter Skelter in October, as well as a special spooky Halloween episode. So we will have more episodes than our regular month schedule, and I don't want you to miss it. I want to give a quick shout out to two of our newest supporters, Angel L. in Pikesville, Maryland, and Donald S. in Sterling Heights, Michigan. This is a true crime podcast. This episode contains details of a violent murder. Listener discretion is advised. Napa is located in Northern California and is known for its wine vineyards. Halloween night in 2004 brought a horror movie scene to this picturesque town. Roommates Leslie, Lauren, and Adrian had a fun night of handing out candy and had retired to their separate bedrooms. Lauren fell asleep but awoke to her dog growling. Listening attentively, she heard some unusual noises in the house, and then screaming. She looked out her door and saw a man run down the stairs and then jump out the front window. She found her roommates had been attacked, and she called 911. Leslie Mazzara, 25, was dead. Adrian Insagna, 26, was rushed to the hospital but died before arriving. They had both been stabbed repeatedly. Lauren did not see the face of the fleeing man. Leslie Mazzara was a salesperson at a local winery. She was a former beauty queen and a South Carolina native. Adrian Insagna was a civil engineer and a highly competitive volleyball player. Adrian worked with her friend Lily at the Napa Sanitation District. Leslie had been attacked first, and it looked like the noises from the attack woke Adrian up, and she turned on the light. The attacker then went into her room next. Adrian's reading glasses had been cut with a knife, and all signs indicated that Adrian had fought hard. The blood trail led to the front window and to the outside of the house. Cigarette butts were found in the front of the house and in the backyard. Zip ties had been found under the front window, indicating the attacker had plans to bind the girls. They did wonder at this if there was a serial killer in the works here. The evidence indicated that Leslie had been in bed when she was attacked. She had no real chance to defend herself. They didn't know if the intruder attacked Leslie first because her room was closest to the stairs or because she was the intended target. The motive was hard to figure out as neither had been sexually assaulted and nothing was stolen from the house. In investigation, it was discovered that Leslie had been getting some unwanted attention from her ex-boyfriend's father. He had been calling her and still calling her even though she had moved to California. She had even received calls from him that night. He had an alibi, however, proving that both he and his son, Leslie's ex-boyfriend, had been in South Carolina. 
Another potential suspect was a handyman who worked in the house on the day of the murders. He had an alibi, however, and it was confirmed. There were over 200 people who were questioned, but nothing came up. The DNA testing showed that there was blood at the crime scene that did not belong to the victims. It was male blood. Most of it was found on the stairs and some outside the house. It appeared the killer had cut himself while stabbing the women. DNA from two of the cigarette butts found outside the house matched with the DNA from the male blood found on the stairs. It also matched skin cells from the rubber band holding the zip ties. There was some new advancements in DNA technology around this time, and investigators sought to use this. They were able to do a DNA analysis to narrow down who they were looking for. They found he would be primarily Northwestern European ancestry, so they knew he wasn't Hispanic or African American. There was a marker that indicated he would have blue or green eyes and most likely light-colored hair. Blood stains that were on the stairway wall on the right side indicated that he was probably right-handed. Investigators released this information to the public. A newspaper report went out and the killer was watching. With the description of what the killer might look like and what he smoked being out there, he was feeling like it was just a matter of time before they got him. The cigarettes that were found were a type called Camel Turkish Gold. They were new at the time, and not a lot of them were sold. They asked Lauren if she knew anyone who smoked that type of cigarette. She told them that the only person she knew who smoked at all was Eric Koppel. She didn't suspect him. He was just the only person she could think of. He had helped them when they moved into the house, and he had been at the funerals. Eric was the fiancé of Adrian's friend Lily, who worked with Adrian. Before they could even go out and look for him, he walked into police headquarters and confessed. At first, Eric Koppel wouldn't say why he had killed them. He said he didn't know. Then he told them what led up to it. He told them that he knew Adrian and Sagna, and that she had told his fiancée that she could do better than him. He felt she had been an influence in his fiancée calling off their engagement. Koppel ran into his ex-fiancée that night at a Halloween party, and they got into an argument. He left the party and eventually ended up outside of Adrian's. He was drunk, and he stood outside their house smoking cigarettes while planning. He then used a knife to pry open the window, and as he went through, he accidentally dropped the package of zip ties there. When he got to the top of the stairs, he didn't know which bedroom was Adrian's. It turned out it was Leslie's room. He killed her first, and then he went after Adrian. He went home after and burnt his clothes in a fire pit in his backyard and then went to sleep. The next day, his ex-fiancé called and told him about the attack. He went to her house to console her. In a sick twist, the two got back together and got married. This was all before he came forward to confess. At his sentencing, he said he had trouble with depression and had been suicidal several times in his life. Koppel pled guilty and got a life sentence without parole. He had never met Leslie before. She had moved in some time later after the first two roommates had moved in so he wouldn't have met her when he was helping them with the move. Koppel said he thought about ending his life, but instead turned himself in so that the family could have answers about the murders. Koppel told authorities he did not remember some portions of that night and does not know why he did it. Lily Koppel stated that she believed the depression and alcohol abuse were to blame. Arlene Allen, Adrian's mother, was the last to speak to the man who robbed her of a life with her daughter. 
Eric, you knew Adrian, and Eric, I know you. I know that you are a man who brutally and callously took the life of a wonderful woman you never met. You are the one who violently stabbed to death the best friend of the woman you loved. You cannot love Lily and murder her best friend. You cannot love Lily and bring a knife into Adrian's home and stab her again and again and again and again and again and yet again. Alan slammed her fist on the podium each time she thundered again. My baby never wore a turtleneck sweater in her life, and yet she had to be buried in one. And still it could not hide the extent of her wounds. You are the man who is so cruel as to invite me, the mother of the woman you murdered, to stand up for you at your wedding, to read scripture to you of love and death, and to bless your union. Throughout that weekend, you brought me into the heart of your family, knowing all the while it was you who destroyed mine. Koppel then spoke, and it was said some was very hard to understand, as he sobbed throughout. I am a broken man. I cannot fathom an explanation for my sinful deeds. The terrible agony inflicted upon a great number of people. Words evade me. He told them that he had suffered from depression and had been suicidal since he was an adolescent. I've always been an introverted person. My beloved grandfather suffered a stroke and died. I could not secure gainful employment. My relationship with Lily was in jeopardy and crashing. It was all like it fertilized the seed of anger in my heart. There was rage inside me. If I had only listened to those who pleaded with me to get the help that I needed. He then said he was sorry to all the family members. After all that, we still don't know why Eric did it. There was no good reason. Of course, there really isn't a good reason to murder anyone. But in this case, it's not just why he did do it, but why Adrian? Eric talked about his fears that Adrian influenced his fiancé's decision in breaking up with him, but still he really felt that her influence was so great that she had to be silenced forever. His abuse of alcohol and underlying depression were said to be factors as well. All in all, you know who did it, and you know how they did it, but we really don't know why. Would this guy have gone on to kill again if he hadn't been caught? Or was it a one-off? If it was a one-off, then the thing to wonder is what could have been done to change this course of events? We will most likely never know. Please stay tuned for the historical newspaper clippings of similar true crime accounts. Okay, we're going to start off the historical clippings in the 1950s here. We do have some older than that, but I'm going to start out with a couple of stories from 1950s. This first one is from the News Journal, Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, the story takes place in Decatur, Georgia, August 14, 1953. Two slain women found in-house. Decatur, Georgia, August 14, 1953. Bodies of two slain women, one nude, were found in a bedroom of a Decatur house and baffled investigators. Police said the two, one with a police record and the other with an entirely different background, had been dead at least three days. Police found Mrs. Lois Fears, 43, owner of the house, on a bed with bullets in her body. On the floor, the unclothed body of Mrs. Evelyn Bennett, 35, shot in the back. The ceiling was peppered with pistol shots. There was no sign of a struggle. 
police believe they were slain by someone they knew and trusted or by a gunman who surprised them. Records at Atlanta showed Mrs. Fears served a year for blackmail in 1927 and had convictions on morals charges. Okay, so after I found this article, I tried to look up anything else I could on this account, and this is the next article that I found. This one is from the Jackson Sun, Jackson, Tennessee, August 20th, 1953. Jackson woman held as Atlanta witness. Atlanta, August 20th. A Jackson, Tennessee woman who formerly lived in Atlanta and Decatur, Georgia, was being held in DeKalb County Jail without bond today as a material witness in the week-old slaying of two DeKalb County women. Deputy Sheriff Lamont Martin Jr. identified the woman as Mrs. Catherine Krause, Spain. Records show she was placed in jail Tuesday night on a material witness warrant. DeKalb County Chief Hoyt Sutton said Mrs. Spain was brought voluntarily from Jackson, Tennessee, but Sutton maintained that there were no new developments in the double slaying. The women, Mrs. Louise Fears, 43, and Mrs. Evelyn Bennett, 35, were found shot to death in Mrs. Fears' house August 13th. Mrs. Fears was killed by two bullets from a 38 caliber gun. Mrs. Bennett died of four wounds from a 25 caliber bullets. No weapons were found at the scene. Both women had police records and both were divorced. They had been dead two or three days when found. The lack of clues has apparently baffled police. So that's really interesting, and I did try to find anything on the police records that they had, um, and I, I got nowhere, but uh, apparently it was from the 20s, and this happened in 1953. At least for the one woman, it was in the 20s. The other one, probably a little bit later. Um, but still, interesting story. You can imagine these two women divorced, both with pasts and records. Um, probably had some interesting things going on there. This is the first article of a few that I found on this one. Uh, first one is from the Herald News, Pasiak, New Jersey. Not sure. 21st of December, 1957, and it is uh, New York. Three women stabbed to death. Three women were found stabbed to death today in their basement Harlem apartment. Two of the victims were found sprawled on a settee. On a settee. Settee or settee? The body of the third was in a chair. Each had been slashed many times about the head, face, throat, and torso. Police said the stabbings were discovered by the superintendent of the building at 1790 Madison Avenue. He and two other men were taken to police headquarters for questioning. Okay, so this is the next one. This is from Daily News, New York, New York, December 22nd, 1957. Um, and it is three women knifed to death in Harlem. Three women were found stabbed to death yesterday morning in the two-room basement apartment of a Harlem building superintendent. The discovery was made after the super, George Coleman, staggered in blood-smeared clothing from the dwelling at 1790 Madison Avenue between 117th and 118th Street, about 8.30 a.m., and asked a passerby to call the police. It says, all are clothed. The first officer to respond found two of the victims sprawled across an open convertible couch in Coleman's living room. In a chair alongside the couch was the third victim. All were fully clothed. There were a number of empty wine bottles in the apartment. A butcher knife lay near the woman dead in the chair. The victims were identified as Mary Keaton, 30, Magdalene Hines, 25, both of the Madison Avenue address, and Rosalie Stamps, 30, of 20th East 118th Street. Each had been stabbed and slashed many times. There was no evidence of any struggle prior to the slayings. At first, Coleman was too drunk to make coherent answers, police said 
But last night, after taking a statement from him, Assistant District Attorney Cortland Nicole reported that he booked on three homicide charges. In the last 10 years, Nicole disclosed Coleman has been arrested nine times, seven of them for felonious assault. His last arrest two years ago was for burglary, subsequently reduced to petty larceny, and he was given 60 days. Reeveport, Louisiana, December 22nd, 23rd, 1957. And this one says, uh, this is the headline, Wino admits killing three after the party. Now, keep in mind, I did not make the headline. I'm reading this out of a newspaper account from 1957. So they made the headline and called him a wino. Wino admits killing three after party. A building superintendent described by neighbors as a wino who drinks cheap wine and diluted alcohol admitted slashing to death his common-law wife and two other women today after an all-night drinking party. Detectives of East 126th Street Station said Joseph Coleman, 40, confessed after five hours of questioning that he killed the three women in the Harlem apartment he shared with two of them. The victims were Mary Keaton, Coleman's common-law wife, Magdalene Hines, 30, and Rosalie Stamps, also 30, of Manhattan. Deputy Inspector John E. Saxton said when Coleman was first brought in for questioning, he was so drunk he could not answer coherently. When he had sobered up sufficiently, Coleman told the police that he was accused the Keaton woman of fooling around with a Christmas tree salesman who lived in the building. I can't make this up. Coleman confessed he stabbed her and the Stamps woman, but blacked out at the point at that point and did not remember slashing the Hines woman. He remembered placing the bodies of two women on a bed and cleaning up the blood-splattered floor, police said. Okay, for this one, we are going back to 1923. This is the Sentinel uh, Carl- out of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, April 6, 1923. Two women found dead. New York. Stabbed in the back and with their throats cut, the bodies of two young women were found lying in a lonely road near the village of Donan Hills, Staten Island, early today. A bloody knife was found nearby. A paper on one of the women indicated that she was from Jersey City. Walter Donovan, who found the bodies, told the police there were no signs of a struggle and no blood spots nearby. Examination of the body showed that there was a number of stab wounds in the throat of each victim. This is the next one on that, and it's from the Tribune in Coshocton, Ohio. April 6, 1923, New York. With their throats slashed, the bodies of Mrs. Irene Blandino, 18 years old, Jersey City, and Bessie McMahon, 22, of Utica, New York, were found by a milkman today lying on the road in Staten Island, where they had been tossed from a speeding auto after their throats had been gashed with a butcher knife. The blood-stained weapon was picked up in a field about 100 feet from the scene. Despite the fact that bloodstains were discovered farther down the road, the police are convinced the two women were slain at some other spot and their bodies transported to the lonely place in a motor car. At least two score detectives in Staten Island are working on the case, and a general alarm has been sent out to all forces asking policemen to watch out for a blood-splotched automobile and to arrest the occupants. Mrs. Blandino was identified by the means of her cork left leg. She is 18 years old, while Miss McMahon is 22. Both were fashionably dressed. Evidence of automobile tires and no sign of scuffling at the scene strengthened the police in the opinion that the women were killed before being brought to the place. Their hats were found several feet from their bodies. The nearest house to the spot where the bodies were found by Donovan is 400 yards. 
There are many places in a radius of several miles where the murder could have been committed with little danger of cries being heard. The warmth of the bodies when found, the nature of the weather, and the location indicated that the bodies were thrown into the bushes sometime after midnight. Clouds and dim lights in the section gave all the shroud the murders could want. A light rain was falling during the early hours, but not enough to dim the automobile tire tracks. In the pocket of the auburn-haired girl's coat, $50 in bills was found. Police are making a round of stores with a wide radius, trying to find out where the butcher knife was bought. A pool of blood was found in the middle of the road a short distance from the scene. As soon as police finished taking pictures of the bodies and the spot where they were found, they were taken to the morgue, where an autopsy will be performed later. A crew of detectives have been sent on rounds to the garages looking for the car that the police feel has much blood on it unless it has already been washed. Detectives are guarding ferry terminals ready to seize any suspects. Dr. George Mord, Richmond Company Medical Examiner, found three stab wounds in the throat of Mrs. Blandino and wounds in her back, corresponding with cuts in her fur coat through which the murderer plunged the butcher's knife, coup de gras in the horrible killing. Similar cuts were found in Mrs. McMahon, except there were no holes on her coat, which must have been put on her later. The faces and arms of both young women were scratched. The place where the bodies were found is an exclusive section but thinly settled and is the rendezvous of bootleggers and joyriders. Nearby, a creek trickles its way to the bay, affording just enough water to float small craft of rum smugglers. Walter J. Donovan, the milkman who found the bodies, was taking a shortcut back to the dairy about daylight when he saw something at the side of the road that arrested his attention. His investigation revealed a murdered girl lying face up with blood running from the wound over her front of her dress and neck. Donovan looked around and on the other side of the road found the body of the other girl face down in the grass. He leaped into his wagon and drove as fast as he could to the Stapleton Police Station, where he reported the tragedy. Acting Inspector Cornelius Cushane sped to the scene in an automobile accompanied by a party of detectives from the Homicide Squad. Captain of Detectives L. Von Wagner assumed charge of the case, and 20 detectives were assigned to assist him. He immediately ordered every exit from the island guarded on the theory that the murderers might still be near, although they had ample time to make their escape after the gruesome killing. The district attorney sent a representative to the scene. Donovan, while not under suspicion, is held near the scene so he can be questioned from time to time. The murders come right on the heels of the police department's tightening up to halt a so-called crime wave that has swept New York during the last 10 days. This is from the Daily News, April 7, 1923. Police theories. The police are working on two principal theories. First, that Mrs. Blandino was killed for revenge, connected with some event in her past, possibly involving her marriage. In such an event, the younger girl was done away with because the murderer or murderers feared her as a witness. The second theory contemplates that the two women, accompanied by casually met men friends, agreed to go to a beachfront roadhouse or to a deserted cottage for a revel, that evil liquor was drunk, and that the women were slain following a quarrel. Stuffed in Mrs. Blandino's stockings were five ten-dollar bills. A little gold locket hung about her neck, and her fingers held three or four cheap rings. Tessie McMahon wore fewer rings, but wore a diamond lavalier. None of these articles were disturbed, precluding the possibility of robbery as a motive. That's it for the historical portion. 
And thank you for listening. Please stay tuned for the um, section where I give away all my source information, all the sources that I use for today's episode. This is a shorter episode today, but keep in mind that all of October, there are going to be extra episodes uh, for the month of Halloween. So please do hit subscribe. If you haven't already, it is free to subscribe, free to listen. And this way you won't miss any of the um, extra episodes that'll be out in October. And as always, please be safe. The sources for this episode are NapaValleyRegister.com. Marsha Dorgan is the writer. And the article is Koppel Admits Guilt in Double Murder. Also, Marsha Dorgan again for the Napa Valley Register. Article named Tears, Anger, A Life in Prison. There's a Forensic Files episode out on this case called Good as Gold. Uh, LATimes.com, Ronnie Tempest. And the article is called Suspect... Con- consoled victim, sorry, suspect consoled victim's family. LA Times writer is Ronnie Tempest, um, as well as the historic newspaper articles that I listed as I went. <laughs>